Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. You're like a head hovering just over the baseline of your... Oh, I can fix that. I can fix that. <laughs> This looks like you're a little kid in a big chair. That's <laughs> um, funny. How's your How's your day going so far? It's good. Yeah. Good. So, um, I'm wondering if on this Sunday you will be prepared to give us a synopsis of responses that people made to the questions I asked. Sure. Yeah. Well, what we did was collate those responses and I try, I didn't do any high math, but I gave small percentages to about where they, where they landed. Um, and I think you pointed out yesterday in our conversation that there is a diverse array of interests, knowledge, um, perspectives in our class alone, but there were some common threads too. Um, what do you see as the common thread? Well, uh, two things. And I think one of the common threads is this kind of thread of the micro and the macro. And what I mean by that are simultaneous personal mm -hmm. concerns, what's right in front of me that's sort of getting me up in the morning or keeping me up at night. Um, and then the macro is, and I can't make sense of, democracy failing, racial injustice, social injustice. Um, so I think we find ourselves in that tension, it seems like, and the tension between what's right in front of me that I can attend to and what feels really big that feels beyond my scope. I saw a lot of that, the micro and the macro, both holding space in people's hearts. Um, I also thought it was interesting that about half of the people have pretty negative first responses to Christianity. Um, when mm -hmm. you asked that question of what, what comes up when I say Christianity and me, um, my favorite response was it's been a good run, but things aren't working out. <laughs> um, I won't disclose who, and I don't know who because no one put their names on it, but that one made me laugh out loud. <laughs> Um, so I do think that the institution of Christianity has contributed to a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I went to bed last night thinking about how best to get into what we're going to try to do Sunday and mm -hmm. talking about this another sign story in John about the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda after mm -hmm. 38 years of being an invalid mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, you know you know me by now enough to know that I love I love to do the biblical literacy stuff. I just think it's so fascinating 
And uh, I think that if we dig deep enough into this, we can find some real relevance for ourselves. But my, my concern is that if I were to start with that, if we were to start with that on Sunday, it would turn a lot of people off. Oh, here we go again, another Jesus story. And mm. uh, so I, I'm I still mm. dance around it. I think uh, I think that we got um, a good title about how um, we ought to choose fear. I mean, faith mm -hmm. over fear. And uh, faith mm -hmm. to deal with fear, faith as I've been defining it, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we'll see. Mm -hmm. I could just say, you know, for the really in-depth and relevant application of this biblical story to your life, here's Holly. <laughs> well, I think you're attending to and reframing of faith over the last couple of weeks, like really trying to get at this sort of definition or understanding of faith. And I'm on a multi-level, mm -hmm. um, has been important. Um, and, and, you know, the, the Michael Morwood's voice so often rings in my ears of the faith. What is, what are you trying to get me to imagine when you're asking me to have this faith? Right. It, and okay, let me pause to me before I went to bed last night, I was thinking about this story too. So, and it's funny, I started to text you and I was like, oh, whatever, I'll, we'll talk about it tomorrow. But I, the thought I was sitting with that even I think we found ourselves wanting to jump past is the feeling of discomfort or despair, you know, just kind of feeling stuck. Well, if I jump into the pool, that means I'm healed. If I don't jump into the pool. I'm going to sit here for another 38 years and languish. Um, so it's like, we're right on this precipice, this edge of jumping or pulling back. And I wonder if that moment doesn't deserve more of our attention than just the action of either stepping into the water or stepping back, you know, they standing on the edge is movement being uncomfortable is a shift. It's just that being uncomfortable is so uncomfortable. And so we don't wanna stay there very long. And it stuck with me that you said, all things end. And that's a very uncomfortable thought for so many, I think. But what do we do in that discomfort? How do we sit with that? That's what I was thinking about last night. <laughs> Well, um, so um, for those of you who are listening to this and are not familiar with the story, um, there is a story that the early Jesus community told. Um, and the way that I would get into it, Holly, is like this. So it will take me maybe four or five minutes to do this. But um, when the, when the early Jesus community uh, around the fourth century, no, around, I'm sorry, around the year 40, 50, maybe the year 50 or 60, was trying to draw together some materials to say who Jesus was, what he did, what Jesus meant to them. They really did it in kind of a, a dialogical way. 
So uh, they would tell a story like uh, this religious leader uh, came to Jesus one day to <clears throat> put him to the test and ask him, <clears throat> pardon me, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus didn't mince any words. He said the greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and body, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. And the religious leader, not being satisfied with that, said, yeah, but who is my neighbor? And then Jesus threw him for a loop by telling the story that we know is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Mm -hmm. And he ends up saying, who do you think was neighbor to the man in need? I imagine that the material in the fourth gospel was put together in a very similar way. These Jesus followers had now been extruded from the Jewish community, their home, their ancestors, forefathers, whichever word you want to put on that, and they were kicked out, as it were. But the payoff of that was that they grew into this community of love, joy, forgiveness, and fearlessness. Mm -hmm. And that attracted a lot of people. And so people would, would ask questions. What, what is this community and, and how does it work? And what's the relationship to this character named Jesus? And one of them crafted this story of, well, there was this guy who had been sick for 38 years. Mm -hmm. And Jesus came along and noticed him. The guy made no effort to get contact with Jesus in the story. Right. Jesus said, what the heck are you doing here? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, in, 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 as Sanford says, Jesus has this uncanny ability to know what's going on, both in the circumstance and in people's minds. And Jesus is irritated with the guy. And the guy says, well, it's not my fault. I couldn't get anybody to pick me up and take me into the pool at the right time so that I could be healed. And Jesus, in essence, says, the heck with a pool. Get up. Roll up that bed you're on. Yeah. And get the heck out of here. Yeah. And um, the, the, the commentators on this say that this is the community's effort also, not only to say something about the healing power of Jesus, but also to say that there is this huge conflict between the religious establishment that was bound and determined to obey all the right laws and Jesus, who in this parable is really quite an obnoxious guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he is. Yeah, he is. Yeah, um, he's he he's tells the guy to get up, take up your bed, and walk. Therefore, uh, causing the guy to break a Sabbath law. When the religious leaders saw this, they said, "What the heck are you doing, taking a bed around on the Sabbath? Don't you know that's breaking a law?" And again, the guy could not take any personal responsibility. And he said, well, the man who healed me did this, uh -huh. not me. I mean, I'm not responsible. Uh -huh. And so the religious leader said, well, who is this guy? And he said, I don't know. Uh, some guy came along and healed me. Later, Jesus encounters him and said, ah, I see you. I see you're well. And well, make sure you don't keep doing what you've been doing. Now, the translation is 
make sure you don't sin anymore or bad things will happen right. to you. And that's really a misreading of the text because nowhere does Jesus connect sin to bad outcomes for you. Right. And he doesn't, he doesn't the same way that the Buddhists do about karma, but that's a whole other story. Right. And we, which we can we can get into this on Sunday too. And and then the guy who now knows who healed goes and tells the religious authorities who did it. Yeah. So he outs Jesus. He, he betrays the very person who brought him healing. Mm -hmm. And the people who crafted this story said, that's what religion does to people. Mm. Betrays the people who do. Hmm. Well, it's, well, it's not a good, it's, it's not a story that's kind to religion. No. For sure. Oh, for sure not. And for all intents and purposes, Jesus is working outside of religion. Like he was, he, he was working outside of the of religion of the of the institution, if you will. You know, he brought the temple outside, and he um, he brought it to the community, and the community became the religion. And and I, you know, this is so and, and a, something another funny comment that came up from those couple of weeks ago when you gathered them was um, that Jesus was a cheeky bugger, <laughs> and there's truth in that, right? I think. Um, uh, he had little patience for the restraints of, of, of the institution, if you will. And he didn't have fear about saying that we'll just move past it. And, and I think that that's, we, we, so, and this is where I think we get deluded that we need this charismatic leader to, to, to tell us to get up and walk or to tell us to get up and get in the pool. And when in truth, all Jesus ever did was say, you've got what you need to get up. It's, it, it goes back to the sort of liberatory reading of the woman at the well, told by, from, from the standpoint of two African women where the, where the priestess says to the Samaritan, here's your water. You have what you need to take back to your village and liberate them. And Jesus, and I think like a good psychologist, and I've said this to you before, hands people back to themselves in a powerful way. But what happens is I think we take that to mean that we, and we do need Jesus. I don't want to say that we don't, but, but I, but what we do is we don't let that shore up our belief in the true self and the pursuit and the sort of wild pursuit of the true self. Instead, we pursue things outside of ourselves. And Jesus is both outside of ourselves and also deeply embedded within as an archetype, right? Like we all have that sort of archetypal savior, if you will, archetypal light inside of us, I think. Um, please correct anything mm -hmm. that I'm saying that could be misperceived, but, um, but this, but instead of following that true self, that light within, we look outside, we continue to look outside and there's very few mouthpieces in the world who have truly, who are showing us what that looks like to go back to the light within. And I, I, I think that in some ways we fundamentally miss the message of Jesus by keeping on looking for that charismatic leader. You know, a, a, a man named Lawrence Freeman, who uh, is, was a great Christian contemplative and mystic, 
uh, wrote a book called Jesus, the Teacher Within. And um, I've always wanted to be very careful in um, saying when I want to raise religious literacy rates about Jesus, I in no way want to communicate any stance of exclusivity about understanding spiritual life and growth and living through mm -hmm. the lens of Jesus. Because you, I can find exactly the same teaching in Buddhism about having mm -hmm. Buddha mind as you would have, as uh, we would talk about, about mm -hmm. having Jesus mind, about having this teacher within. And what you say is exactly right, is that Jesus would say, all the great spiritual teachers have said, you already have what you need. The, the, the point is, are you willing to access it and to live it? And um, the culture in which the Jesus story was constructed was one where Jewish identity had become so critically important to those who had it that they were, they were not only hesitant to step outside of it, but they lived in a culture of yeah. contempt yeah. for others. And that is one of the things that's going on in American culture right now is this contempt for people who don't hold the same point that's of right. view that I do. And, you know, when I go deeper than contempt, because I don't think it stops there, I think it is about belonging, longing to belong. And when we don't have a sense of belonging to, um, this is why I think we're so focused on the micro. Who in my immediate sphere do I need to attend to? My children, my household, et cetera. Because the macro feels fuzzy, overwhelming, and, and frankly hostile, you know, and to many, to many people. And I think that this need for belonging constructs contempt. It creates contempt when we don't feel like we belong we become angry at the people who are excluding us, however we perceive them. And I think that's true across the board. Human nature is, is, is looking for, again, instead of looking within for how have I participated in this, either evolution or devolution, we look outward and want to blame someone. And that creates contempt and anger and violence. And I'm never going to say that I think, let's say those who were enslaved are responsible for their own enslavement. That's not what I'm saying, but I think what has to be transformed is how we see ourselves inside of that, which holds us captive. Is that our identity? Is our identity about being held captive by a system? Or is our identity deeper than that? You know, you look at someone like Nelson Mandela, right? And he found something in his identity. He wasn't a perfect man, but he found something deeper in his identity than being a prisoner of politics. You know, he was imprisoned for years on Robben Island, years and years, but he found something deeper inside than just relating to being a prisoner. That's a lot to ask of someone. And not very many people have the resolve to commit to that process. So I think this sort of in-betweenness 
is where we are perfectly named, right? Um, you've tapped into that really well over the last couple of years. We are in an in-between where we don't know how to move deeper into the self to go beyond the constraints and the contempt. Well, what, what I learned um, when I was in school, um, and, and I'm hesitant to keep this saying this because it sounds arrogant, but I really learned this when I was doing a postdoc at Harvard with the people that I hung out with there. Um, it's, there was so much that just fell into place for me. And, and one of the professors said that what caused the early Jesus movement to thrive, uh, and it really was not a very big movement. It was backwater place and not that big, but what, what transformed the, what kept the movement alive was that people were attracted to the qualities that I talked about earlier. They're attracted to this community of people who were joyful, unafraid, forgiving, loving, generous, um, Sherry and I finished watching last night a series on PBS about the Black church. And one of the featured speakers or people that they interviewed mm -hmm. was Cornel West. And uh, here's a man living in our time who says the same thing about that community, the Black community, that kept a lot of the civil rights concerns going, both inside and outside the church because it, soon the movement became parachurch movements and Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter and all that sort of thing. But when you hear Cornell West talking, and you know his material far better than I do, he talks about the power of the beloved Absolutely. community. I think, you know, Cornell West is a very vocal critic. I think a necessary critic in our times. Um, I, you know, a friend once said to me, you can critique something and still love it. Baldwin said, I love America more than any country in the world. Therefore, I reserve the right to critique her relentlessly. Right. And, and, I, and mm -hmm. I think that that's clear eyed, actually, because what what that critique allows us to do is to get far enough away from to differentiate from our identity as, as, as an American, let's say, and to sort of see it from the outside. And that's what I think Cornell West does well, too. And mm -hmm he always comes back to love and he always comes back to the necessity of dying to greed and narcissism as part of achieving love, right? That there has to be a death in order to realize true love. So despite his criticism and despite his vocal presence, he also believes, I believe he's almost critiquing to, to challenge us to go be better, do better, be love. You know, that's I, what, how, it, yeah. I'm glad we're having this conversation because I have a note written for me to ask you, and I've had it for weeks and weeks, to ask Holly, mm -hmm. what is the best Cornell West book to read? Probably Race Matters. It's, it's one of his first Um that, but he's written so many essays and um, think pieces over time. 
that I'll, I'll find some for you, but I, that I think are worth that are in larger volumes, for example, okay. that are in edited volumes. Yeah. Um, but race matters is his kind of quintessential work, kind of like James Cone's um, uh, a liberation of black theology or sorry, a theology of black liberation. You know, that's his quintessential work. He has others. He has other really good ones. The cross and the lynching tree is a good one, for example, by James Cone. Um, but that quintessential work really was formative, I think, for the rest of his work. Cone was a professor of mine at Union. And, you know, he's deceased, yeah. he's deceased now. Yeah. But um, yeah. that was my first encounter with James Cone would be probably in 1968 or 69, somewhere like that. And so he was just getting started in his articulation mm -hmm. of black theology and what he had to say just scared the daylights out of a lot of people. But I found him um, to be understandably angry at the, mm -hmm. at, at the system and, and mm -hmm. so absolutely brilliant. And these mm -hmm. people, James Cone, Cornell West, uh, Stokely Carmichael, James Baldwin, a number of those people did take stances that really upset the establishment. And mm -hmm. guess what? So did Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things. You have to be. Yeah. That's one of the things this story is about. Jesus went out of his way in this particular story, really to be quite obnoxious to the yeah. establishment. Yeah, in that way, it's a it's a really it's a really great story. Yeah, I mean the precociousness of Jesus. He was thirty two, maybe thirty three, when he was crucified. The precociousness of Jesus is that he must have individuated at a very early age, because he already was could get outside enough from the establishment to see it, you know, he could see it clearly. And I think that this is sort of where we have a choice. And this is the, the choice of the crippled man, right? Do I stay here and languish for another 38 years and believe that I cannot get up or do I just do it is um, we have a choice to continue being blind. We have a choice to, to try not to see. And we call that whatever you want, it, but, but it is a choice that we make to not want to see. But I find it impossible to unsee it once you have seen it, right? The, the, the shadow of the establishment. And if we don't deal with what we see, if we keep trying to, you know, put it behind us, as you know, it comes out in compulsions. It comes out and, you know, the shadow comes out. In different behaviors. And so isn't it isn't it interesting that we're using this phrase not to see or the decision not to see when we're right in the midst of all of the hubbub about the movie on Netflix called Don't Look Up. Yeah. I'm so glad you turned me on to that. I'm so bad at finding uh, great movies to watch. Josh is kind of that person in our family. But um and I love it. It seems like you and Sherry commit to kind of watching something almost every night. Um, we've, we've gotten out of that habit, but I really liked it. And I thought it was well done um, and a good metaphor for exactly where we are and, right now. And, and I also mentioned to you that um, I heard about, it took me a while to get it, but I heard about, mm -hmm. I love stand-up comedy. I just love stand-up uh -huh. comedians. And, 
Um, Sherry will sit there on the couch and tolerate it with me because she doesn't like it as much <laughs> as I do. So we have to balance that some way. But I heard yeah. about this stand-up routine by Roy Wood Jr., which you can access mm -hmm. through Apple TV. Uh, I mm -hmm. paid like three bucks for it, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wish people would watch it. It it does have. And what's that one called? What's his stand up routine called? Imperfect. I'll look it up. Imperfect something. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and it, well, we, maybe we can link to those. Two it, it does on have the, some tough language in it, yeah. but the the thing about it is, and I'm directing these people to white people. I mean, these remarks to white people. It shows you what uh, this African American comedian is willing to say and what his audience finds funny playing in an African-American comedy club. He is not, mm -hmm. this is not a Netflix special. This is, this is something that he's speaking to his people, as he would say. Particularly communal. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And one of the things he noticed was that um, when white people talk about the past, in this country, they talk, talk about their forebearers. Mm -hmm. When black people talk about their history in this country, they talk about their ancestors. Mm -hmm. It's a real mm -hmm. telling difference. Mm -hmm. it's a, mm -hmm. it, I learned a lot by watching and and uh, yeah, it's the culture. Of no, it. he's good. I've not watched his, his stand-up routine, but I like what he does with Trevor Noah. And, you know, I mean, I think like any, I think what's so wonderful about the arts, for example, and I include, you know, comedy in that is when we, the arts are open, the arts by nature are sort of an open playing field. Anyone can create, whether that person gets airtime or not is a lot uh, up to a lot of different things, but the arts make us very aware that human beings are not a monolith. You know, <laughs> that uh, Roy Wood may say one thing over here, someone else, Chris Rock may say another thing over here, you know, it, and, and yet what we begin to understand is that, is that the arts also help us define the ethos of something, the ethos of a time. You know, I, I often think that our, our recorded history is more based on the visuals from each time period than it is from the historical events, because the artist is often the observer of, of, the, of, of the civilization. The, the comic is an observer of behavior and then finds a way to make it funny so that it, it, we can internalize and make it palatable. Um, and suddenly we realize we're laughing and we really should be crying, you know? <laughs> but um, I, I think that that is a real gift of the artist and this ability to as, Again, James Baldwin says, shine the light on, on what is. One of but. the things that uh, Raymond Brown in his commentary on John says that is that this man, 38 years by the pool, is a metaphor for one's chronic inability to seize opportunity. Mm-hmm. 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 And you know, I have sat with so many people over the years who have said, if only I had paid attention, mm -hmm. I could mm -hmm. have seen 
you know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Well, I I I think it will be interesting to see what Holly has to say about this on Sunday, folks. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to sit there and just give it away a little, wait it out, and see what you do. Ah, uh, okay. No, I've got. Well, then I will just be silent for a while and say, "How does it feel to sit with discomfort? What choice are we going to make?" <laughs> well, I'm looking. I'm, I'm looking forward to our teaching together and, and seeing what happens. I think that this. Um, this is an, a very interesting, um, very complex, very rich story. It has so much in it. There's no way we can deal with all of it on Sunday, but mm-hmm. maybe we'll commit to keep plowing on through John rather than camping out here for very long. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what we start to see, and I, and I know we're ending, but um, is the connection between each of these stories too. There's There's a thread that that connects each one. It's not like each message is wildly different. Right. The connective thread is grow up, get up, make some choices about how you want to live in this world. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And the misin- the misinterpretation of the phrase be born again in uh, fundamentalist mm-hmm. American Christianity is it keeps people immature. Oh gosh, yeah. That that's it. That is it. Spong or Sanford? Now I can't remember who makes that point. That the this opportunity to be born again inside of Christianity can happen daily, and it keeps us infantile. You know, yeah. <laughs> on if, if we take that literally, but metaphorically, yeah. Of course, we're born again every day because every day we see something new if we're open. But do we include that into our experience in a way that keeps pushing us forward? Anyway, yeah. Okay. Alrighty. Adios. Adios. I'll see you Sunday. <laughs>